Matthew 19, here in verses 16 through 22, and I will not read all of it, but the first couple of scriptures, verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, talking about Christ, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And as was quoted even in the telecast, the Christ did reference then several of the Ten Commandments. And the young man pointed out that uh, I've kept all of these. Well, what else can I do? And, of course, he had, he had the wrong perspective. He was His life was pretty much focused on physical things, on, on wealth or certainly physical possessions and what all. And uh, so he he missed the point that Christ was was making. And let's turn back to what uh, even there he says that uh, in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And, of course, the young man went away sorrowful because he wasn't ready and willing to do that. Then in John chapter 6, Christ actually states the very same point in a, in a in a different way, but again familiar scripture with John chapter six, especially at at the uh, post Passover time that we've had. But in John chapter six, verse fifty three and fifty four, Jesus said to them, "Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you." Whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he was, of course, speaking metaphorically here about something, then consuming Christ and what Christ represented. And he pointed out here that that, uh, in verses 60 through 63, because he wasn't talking literally about eating his flesh and drinking his blood physically, literally, verse 60 Therefore, many of his disciples, so those were learners, those, those were those that had been convinced perhaps that he was the Messiah, and yet when he makes this very strange statement in their mind, then they're confused. And he said that to hear, they heard this, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? They missed the point spiritually. And when Christ knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, so he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit which gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are a life. The young man had asked, what can I do to have eternal life? And Christ points out the commandments. And here he says, his words are a life that we are to listen and note what he says. Then in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, Paul uses another expression, pointing in this direction. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, he says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life, in peace. 
So if we're going to enter into life, we have to be spiritually minded. If that's the case, we have life and peace. Then in verses 13 and 14, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Pointing out that it's God's spirit that gives us the ability to be spiritually minded. So his comment there was, my words are life. They will give you life. What were his words? Now, obviously, through the four Gospels, we have, and those of have read letter, read letter Bibles, that uh, there are a lot of words that Christ spoke, many of them, and especially in the, in the context of John 6. Again, he was speaking via metaphor about something that was not literal, and those that were not spiritually minded, and they didn't have God's spirit yet, certainly did not discern what he said. But his statement should be and could be applied to other times about these words giving life. And as he preached that to the masses and to his disciples, all many of those words obviously had to do with life. So this afternoon I'd like to examine just some of those words that Christ spoke. And we can discern how spiritually minded we are and ask ourselves, maybe to a degree, are we headed toward that kingdom that he told the young man he could enter if he kept his commandments? And he says, later my words are life. So if you'd like a title for the sermon or a specific purpose statement, we'll be discussing practicing Christ's words of life. Practicing Christ's words of life. Now we know that Christ lived a perfect spiritual life, a sin-free life. He kept God's law unerringly. He did not have a sin in his life. And he was the perfect example that we are to follow in our lives. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Paul states it very succinctly here. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, a scripture that most of the world, most of the Protestants clearly misunderstand, but we can understand it. So for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And of course, the Greek word there for end is telos. And it means the aim or the purpose. The Christ was the perfect example that we are to follow that comes by one keeping perfectly God's law, then we become that, Christ became that perfect example. So he was the perfect exemplary in every way, every aspect of his life, every day of his life, the aim and purpose of the law to follow that example. So we learn to follow his words and that example. So let's turn to some of those words. Now, these are words that are quite familiar with all of us or to all of us. But these are well worth reviewing, reviewing because they are words of life. So let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. That alone will give you a hint of where we're going in the sermon. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So not just the twelve. There were a good number of disciples. And you can read uh, reference to this also in Luke. I think it's chapter chapter 12 or chapter 6 where he comes down from the mountain. And there, uh, there have been a lot of people there. And he says here, and then he goes on the mountain and he opened his mouth and, and taught them, saying, in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs the kingdom of heaven. So another hint here, this one one aspect of character that will help get us into that kingdom that he told the young man about. That he's going to be poor in spirit will get us, help us get there. Now the word poor, and again I'm, I'm no Greek scholar, but just based on a couple of the Bible aids, the word poor actually relates to uh, physical poverty. But that's not what Christ said. He said the poor in spirit. And here he's referring to being humble, where one is aware of one's weaknesses, our wrong habits, our wrong tendencies, our caving in once in a while to human nature, that we are in need of that, and we're humble, and we realize how much we need God. Over in Psalm 149, Psalm 149, verse 4, It's recorded there that it says, For the eternal takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. That humility, this poor in spirit attitude, is just absolutely essential and crucial to qualifying for God's kingdom. So we can ask ourselves, how, how well do we understand our, our nature? The, still the human side of our nature. And do we reflect on that to the understanding that, yes, we still desperately need God. And we have no reason to be vain, no reason to be arrogant. That if we take literally the scripture that God says he calls the weak of the world and the ignoble, then we'd have to ask, well, that, uh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> we fit the program because most of us don't fall into the, the noble category. But he tells us that if we keep that humility, that that will be one step toward God's kingdom. Then back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we mourn and the word mourn there can mean to lament and to lament one's own humanity. And for that matter, even uh, lamenting the world around us and all the things that we can see and know that are wrong and recognize the lure that some of those things have to us. We mourn about that as well as our own our own natures. And we find over in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this in Romans 7. Even as an apostle, 
and preaching the gospel and performing great works for Jesus Christ and, and the Father, he still recognized how human he was. And he mourned about it. Just if you read the words here in Romans 7, verses 22 through 25. Verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he recognized he was still human, and he struggled in order to serve and obey God in the spirit. But then the scripture says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, in verse 25, Paul writes, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. And he's comforted by the fact that knowing that Christ is going to enable him to continue to serve him and do his work and live the Christian life, going to deliver him from this body of sin, that Christ would be the one who would provide that comfort. And I'll just make reference to Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, again, a well-known scripture about mourning, that uh, we have our attitude about the world. Hopefully we have the right attitude, because there God talks about protecting those in Israel that were sighing and crying over the sins of Israel. They struggled to look at the world around them and realize what a what a satanic and sin-filled world it was, and realized how how dangerous that world was. And God wants us to sigh and cry over the abominations that we see going on around us. And sometimes it's it's easy to be a little bit condemning. Uh, look at them, look at the world. But we should actually feel sorrow for them. Not vindictive natures toward them. But realize we have our, our shortcomings. And we should mourn about the status and conditions of the world. All right, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the kingdom, as we saw in the telecast, the kingdom is going to be right here on the earth. And we don't want to be there as physical human beings, but we want to be there. <laughs> We're looking for the chance to stay here on the earth for a long time. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the meek means gentleness of spirit. And we can ask ourselves, how gentle is our spirit? How gently are we uh, put upon, if you will, being asked things of us? But this week, gentleness of spirit also, not not about being overly assertive. Not uh, there are certain facets of it that's good, but not having too much of a Type A personality, <laughs> pushy and assertive in a wrong way, a gentleness of spirit, not insisting that things always be done our way. 
In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 19, sort of references this. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Let me just turn back there. Proverbs 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. That gentle attitude, the gentle nature that really is slow to anger. And we can ask ourselves whether or not we, do we have a, uh, a short temper? Now, I think that that's rare among God's people. But we can ask ourselves whether or not we are slow to anger. There are times that being angry can be appropriate, but should not sin when we get angry. But the latter part of the verse here says, in his glory is to overlook a transgression. That if we're going to deal with someone, we deal with them gently. And we'll discuss that in, a, in another another scripture as well. But gentle, gentleness of spirit is going to help us inherit this earth and be a part of the rulership of, of the world and the kingdom that Christ will set up. Then in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, Christ talks about desiring physical things or needing physical things, and even in his prayer, uh, instructions about prayer, that God knows the things we need, and we should focus on other matters. But hungering and thirsting after righteousness could be filled. Maybe it to put that in a context is all of us can think about what was going on in our minds and our lives in the early stages of God calling us into his work. When there was a time that perhaps we could not find enough time to study as much as we wanted to study. That perhaps we devoured booklets that we got, we ordered, get a booklet from headquarters. You know, you'd sit down the first chance and read it stem to stern. Right? Pays to last. Because we wanted to know everything that we could about God's way of life. We got a, years ago, we get a plain truth. And sat down and read it. From beginning to end. We get a coworker letter. First thing we want to do is read it and find out what's going on in God's work. And Mr. Ames has reminded us on multiple occasions that we need to read our literature. We need to read our magazine. We need to read tomorrow's world. We know what to what the gospel is that the God wants preached in that edition. We read the Living Church News because we want to know how Christ is guiding the leadership of his church to provide us more information about, about being servants of God. So hungering and thirsting after righteousness where we don't have to kind of talk ourselves into Bible study. We want to study God's word. 
We want to pray. Now, I know human nature sometimes makes that a little bit of a challenge. But with God's Spirit, we tell ourselves we need to pray. We need to do certain things, not what we want to do. What we want to do comes in priority after what we should do. But says, when if we're there, we're going to be filled. Back in Psalm 63, in Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5, And the heading says this is one of David's psalms. Verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That's the world. There's no water, no spiritual water in the world. We find that in God's word and in God's work and God's church. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because of your loving kindness is better than than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. And my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. And the the margin talks about there, about that abundance and and physical well-being. My soul will be satisfied or shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness in my mouth, shall praise you with joyful lips. That's what it says in verse 6, back in Matthew chapter 5, that the hungering and thirsting after righteousness that will be filled. And David records here that staying close to God and walking with him, studying his word, that our, our souls will be filled. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Verse 16 of Ephesians 3, breaking into the middle of a thought, referring to Christ, is that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And again, in Matthew chapter 5 or 6, talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness that will be filled. And God will give us that if we work to stay close to him and certainly spend our time on priorities that are important to doing the work and, of course, in serving and obeying God ourselves. In Matthew chapter 5, again, verse 7, one of these words that matters in terms of life, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. We all know that we're going to have to have a lot of mercy extended to us in order for us to be made part of God's 
kingdom. That he's going to take God's mercy to blot out our sins on a continuing basis as we go through our Christian lives. In Matthew chapter 6, though Christ does make a pretty daunting statement, and this is after, after concluding the outline of how we should pray, and it is a daunting statement. It's a, a bit, let's say, frightening statement. If we take the time to consider it carefully, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, verse 7, Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That that's... That's the process. That's the sequence that affects how merciful and how much forgiveness you and I are shown. What kind of attitudes we display toward those that may offend us, may do us harm. The attitude that we have to have for those that don't quite maybe measure up even to our personal expectations. In Matthew chapter 18, this is the I guess the classic example out of, out of God's word and, and, and what Christ was teaching here in Matthew chapter 18. And in verses 21 through 35, we have here the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I'll just read the last four verses or verses 32 through 35. After this unforgiving servant has been forgiven, he does not treat those that owe him in the same manner. So in verse 32, his master says, After he had called him, he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servants or servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry. And delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And forgiveness, if we're deeply offended, forgiveness is not easy. And yet God does expect, Christ does expect has to be forgiving. If we're going to expect to be forgiven and be sincerely sorrowful for what we've done, then we should be willing to exhibit the same kind of kindness and forgiveness to those that might. It might do us wrong, literally. In Matthew 18, it talks about that if someone sins against us, that does something that is just downright wrong, that we should be willing to forgive them. That's what we have to do. In Psalm 18, chapter 18, verse 25, Psalm 18, verse 25, says, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. 
tells us there that, again, the same statement, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And the psalmist gave us the same reminder that God is merciful with us if we show mercy to others. Then verse 8, back in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll spend a little bit, uh, a little bit more, uh, talking about this particular point, a few more refer- referencing scriptures. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And just touching on what is said there about being forgiving, that we have to forgive from the heart. Uh, that is part of being, having a pure heart. But pure in heart refers to being sincere, being genuine, uh, not pretending, and also to be pure in heart is to not have any wrong motive, not have some sort of private strategy or reason for things we do, but to be uh, open and not have any private motive. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Luke 12, verse 1, and I'll just, I'll read it. You can to turn, you can write it down, and no need to turn there necessarily. Christ just points out very, very quickly to his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Not being pure in heart, having a motive, having a personal agenda for what they do, what they say. That uh, the Pharisees, which, uh, the, uh, which Christ told them sometimes to their face, that they were hypocrites and that they had the wrong motive. They were, uh, I think, uh, there is a... Uh, Saying it was, it was a sort of a mutual admiration society. You know, I can't believe that as a group, they didn't recognize they were a bunch of bad guys. But they pretended to be righteous. What they uh, displayed publicly, their public face was one of piety, one of appearing to be righteous, and doing whatever they thought could gain them a following or gaining, helping them maintain their authority, their position in the community, their position in the synagogue, that they had motive for what they did. And they were a sort of a, a private society. And they wouldn't necessarily call one another out. And even those that did believe, uh, like uh, the one that came after dark because he didn't want anyone to know uh, that uh, they wouldn't go correct their fellow Pharisees and say, you guys are all wrong. You've got this man wrong. No, they would go away privately. Even Joseph of Arimathea was a, a man of the, uh, the community, of the uh, spiritual community, and he was careful about that. As well, so Christ says, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy." In First Timothy, chapter one, First Timothy, chapter one, 
verse 5. First Timothy 1, verse 5. It says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love with a pure heart, a sincere love, not a put-on concern, not a, a put-on uh, expression of empathy or sympathy, but one of real concern and a pure heart from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Three things that are components, if you will, or pieces of the pure heart, the kind of love that comes from keeping God's law. Again, God wants us to keep the letter of the law, but he is saying we should be keeping the spirit of the law. In our affection for one another, if we go to that, the great commandment, two great commandments, and one of the second ones to, to love our fellow neighbor, and have a pure heart to do it with sincerity. Acts chapter 5, we're looking at a, a wrong example, but we can notice the latter part of the situation here. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We have the account of Ananias wanting to appear to be willing to sacrifice for the church and the fellow members of the church and for the doing of the work, the preaching of the gospel perhaps, and providing for the needs of those that were uh, sticking around after God did, receiving God's Holy Spirit. And the church was growing dynamically. But said a certain man named Ananias in verse 1, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, party to it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet, pretending that was what they had sold their possessions for. That was all of it. That was the total amount of the revenue that they had gained. And Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? And while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to, to men, but to God. So Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So, some effort to literally and deliberately deceive others because they wanted to be thought of as making a great sacrifice. But God says he wants us to have a pure heart. For a pure heart, again, the comment was, they shall see God. They will see Jesus Christ, and they'll see the Father in due time. But they have not lied. They had not lied. He had not lied to, to men, although that was true too. But that wasn't what really mattered. But they had lied to God. In Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 15, verse eight, talking about the pure heart. 
and where should I'm sure we're all aware that we might human beings can fool other human beings, but not God. Verse eight. For so God who knows the heart acknowledges them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And there is the example where God's Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. And God could see that that was to be done because they were being called to him. They understood and they were being offered salvation. And so here at the conference in Jerusalem, Peter rehearses this, that God knows the heart and he rewards us accordingly. And the pure heart will in time see God. In Matthew chapter uh, chapter 5, let's go back there. Matthew chapter 5. We'll skip over a couple of items for the moment. But just I think the context right here points to this pure in heart that uh, God expects of us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, what's the motive there? The motive's a good one. <laughs> do the good works so they can glorify, they will glorify God not for the show that the Pharisees were guilty of in their hypocrisy, but to glorify, for God to be glorified in that. In Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of these these teachings of Christ after upon, up on the mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it says, take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, that seems pretty extreme. <laughs> but apparently that, that happened. Because Christ uses that example. Don't do what the hypocrites do, where they literally sound out on a trumpet to get people's attention in order to do something that they would be viewed as good, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And obviously people did admire them for what they had done. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that has to be a metaphor. <laughs> we do know what we're doing, but don't, don't let anyone else necessarily know about it. That your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And even when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Uh, that's, that does happen, I think. It, uh, probably some of the things were said in uh, the soapboxes that people got on in Great Britain that uh, 
with necessarily prayers, but the things they wanted to, to espouse. But they do these things literally, going on in Jerusalem at the time, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So God does encourage us to practice Christianity in a private way, to not do things for show, that the pure in heart will not be doing that. Pointing out there, simply we, we don't want to be doing this because we're seeking some sort of vainglory, because we want to show something. We don't do these things for show. There are no ulterior motives for doing the good things that we do. Nothing wrong in us knowing about it. So I know sometimes we can't keep these things from our family, but we don't have to make make them public necessarily. So God he wants us to have a pure heart and have our motives. And the human side of our natures sometimes want to be recognized by people, by men, maybe even by some of our fellow members of the church. But that's something that God will not honor in that sense. So we want to be have the pure heart. And then in Matthew chapter 5, next point, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, one of those steps of entering into the God's kingdom. The words of life. And being a peacemaker is one of those qualifications for entering that kingdom. A peacemaker. You know, that only appears one time. <laughs> the word peacemaker. Now, it talks about peace a lot in the Bible, but the peacemaker. But defined as one who loves peace. Loves peace. Now, that uh, real peace. Not peace on my terms, and my terms only. I think Putin wants peace. If he could have Ukraine and all that's in it, and everybody else will just get out of his way. So, but genuine peace. The peace that God defines through his law. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, I won't turn back there, but... Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, talks about Melchizedek being the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, and then points out there that being properly translated as king of righteousness, and then king of Salem means king of peace. So God's peace that we should be striving for. We are peacemakers in our families. We are peacemakers at work. We're peacemakers in the congregation. And we don't strive to be contentious, certainly not willfully contentious, but being a peacemaker, to love peace. In Scripture that was even referenced and part part of the telecast, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We're referencing Christ. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the kind of peace that he will bring through his law, through his spirit, he will bring to the entire world. Well, people will dwell in peace, peace and safety. There will not be war. 
There will not be riots. There will not be burglaries. There won't be murders. The right kind of peace. And, of course, in verse 7, it points out of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, the government is going to spread. God is over the entire universe. But that government apparently will expand and include us in that government over the, over the entire universe. And at everywhere that God rules will be peaceful. There will be no wind. It won't be just on earth. It will be out all, throughout all of God's kingdom once Christ returns and sets that up and leads through the millennium and then on into eternity. All right, then back in Matthew 5. Verses 21 and 22, I'll read. Talking about the spirit of the law now here specifically. You have heard that it was said to you of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. He'll be brought before the tribunal or the, 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 the council of the leaders there in the community. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire, referring to Gehenna. And he's talking about there that murder, physical murder, that even holding an Another human being in utter contempt, various ways of expressing it here, but having utter contempt for another human being is a spirit of murder. And God does not want us to have that. And that, again, going back to not being uh, quickly angry, being slow to anger, to not strike back or be defensive, to where one simply allows temper to be out of control. God says we should not do that. So, and he talks about the spiritual part of it. And then in verses 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said to you of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the spirit of the law is what God expects us to keep. Now in the, in the booklet, what is a true Christian? Uh, written by Dr. Meredith on pages 9 and 10. I, I think depending on which it is, there's been a reprint. Uh, this might be on pages 10 and 11, but you can find it if you go and read it. But he writes, says, Jesus was asked by a young man, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Christ answered, If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments, which we read earlier. And, and he goes on to explain the very same thing. gives these uh, the last commandments. But then he writes, So Jesus clearly taught that the way of eternal life was to obey God by keeping his Ten Commandments. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly magnified the Ten Commandments. And I'm just skipping through some of the, the content. But then he says, after reading uh, the, the Kingdom of Heaven about that, He says, a careful study shows that far from doing away with these commandments, Jesus made them even more binding. Christ revealed that they formed a spiritual law. 
including but far greater in scope than the literal requirements God had given to ancient Israel. He taught that his followers should not only refrain from murder, but also they were not even to harbor the spirit of murder, misguided anger, hatred, and rage in their hearts, which we read in verses 21 and 22. He went on to show that not only was it must a true Christian never commit adultery, but that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He writes, then so even the spirit or attitude of adultery is breaking God's spiritual law, the Ten Commandments. And so he certainly did not give a, do away with God's law, but he expanded it, he expounded it, deepened it in so many ways. And that's the the kind of pure heart, the spirit of the law that God wants us to keep as well. Some of the other ideas here in verses 33 and or 34 and 37, he talks about don't swear at all. Simply our word should be sufficient that if we make a declarative positive statement, that what we said, what we claim, is simply taken at our word. In Matthew chapter 6, in verses, I'm, I'm just mentioning a couple of these, verses 19 through 21, he talks about where our heart is, that's where our treasure should be. So measuring whether our treasure does reflect where our heart is. Then in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 1 through 5, he talks about not judging others. And the point there is we should not be condemning others. We certainly can recognize when someone is overtly sinning. But again, we don't know all of the heart. We can't condemn them for it. Let God be the final judge on those things. And certainly this refers back to being merciful. But in Galatians chapter 6, and I will, I will turn there. Galatians chapter 6. Paul gives a, a bit of a warning, but also an instruction on how we are to reflect on our fellow Christians. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Galatians. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, in other words, those that understand, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So, you know, if we know the person well, we could talk to them and be gentle. And a warning comes here. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That if we are too busy, too quick to judge, too quick to condemn, that we could be very well having to experience a trial or a test of similar nature and not think that we are above what we've seen done. And if we think, and I've mentioned this before, but Somehow I may be this way and I may be that way, but I would never do that. Is an open invitation to Satan 
to see, well, to see whether or not that you are above that, whether I'm above that. That's, that is a, it just says here, we can be tempted if we are too, too quick to judge and condemn. Then in chapter seven, back in Matthew, the golden rule, <laughs> treat others in all aspects as we would want to be treated. Do unto others as we would like to be treated. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes about this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Well, if we truly do esteem others better than ourselves, then we are going to treat them well. <laughs> We're going to be nice. We're going to respect them. It's when we esteem others less than ourselves that we might not be practicing this golden rule that the, the, the phrase that the world, the world uses that we somehow are better than them. And so we don't feel the obligation to treat them with, with due respect. So Matthew chapter seven, we'll read here. These chapters, we've been through chapter five, the verses we've re- reflected on. The traits that will help us get into God's kingdom, the words for life. It's a vital, vital portion of scripture. These are a whole host of words of life that Christ spoke. And then he closes this teaching in chapter seven toward the end of it with a bit of a warning, which I think applies or should apply, can apply not only to those who are of a different persuasion in terms of the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, not called of God, but even of us here in verses 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, we don't, God willing, we don't practice lawlessness. But we should be practicing the words of life, the spirit of the law, the things that will get us into God's kingdom. Give us eternal life. That this, these words of life that Christ spoke should be what's guiding us. And that following these words, again, this, this way of life will help us be sure, we will be real sure that our actions, our way of life do in fact reflect that of a Christian. So in conclusion, I'd like to just turn to a couple of scriptures and just read them. To note through scriptures, I think, that sum up the effect of 
Jesus' words, his way of life, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love, those two basic commandments, God of love that he puts in us, both his Holy Spirit, God of love and peace will be with us, will be with you and with us. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writing about the gospel that he preached. Preaches about Christ, and he says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus, that living the words of life will get us there. And Christ himself, back in Matthew chapter 5, points this out, and this is, there are obviously many other words here I didn't refer to in, in the sermon But the verse would apply to everything that Christ spoke of here on the Mount, chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 as well. But verse 48, if we live by these words and practice these things in the spirit, that these are words of life. And therefore, in verse 48, you shall be perfect, complete spiritually, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And using those words, following those words, will lead us into God's kingdom.